In April this year, American news networks reported on the case of two parents in Maryland whose child-rearing practices were sparking national debate. Danielle and Alexander Maytive had chosen to allow their children, Rafi, age 10, and Devorah, age 6, to play outdoors and to walk home alone without adult supervision, believing that children learn self-reliance by exploring the world on their own. On one such occasion, phone calls to the police saw a patrol car take the children into custody and to set in motion an investigation by Child Protective Services. With accusations of child neglect leveled by the authorities, a case file opened on the family and a safety plan decreed, the parents have responded by contesting the intrusion and continuing to afford their children opportunities for autonomous play. In an effort to preempt another trip to the lockup, however, young Rafi and Devorah now wear lanyards and tags offering information to anyone determined to intervene. I am not lost, the tags declare. I'm a free, I'm a free range kid. As the experiences of the Maryland family attest, a contemporary discourse of anxiety surrounds youth at large. Children and young people in Western nations are caught in a binary, perceived either, as with the Maytive siblings, as inherently imperiled, or else, as seen in these examples from the press, as a social threat for which there is now even a term, ephebiphobia, fear of young people. Such portrayals in turn coexist with what we might call a Western language of decline concerning the diminution of youthful independence. Best-selling books and feature articles in the US, Britain, and Australia bemoan the rise of chauffeur-driven childhood, the so-called islanding of children into discrete city spaces, and the legacies for children's health of adult-imposed restrictions on walking, running, skipping, and cycling. Australian children, in the words of one commentator, are fatter, sicker, and sadder than ever before. Childhood, indeed, is now, quote, toxic, according to British writer Sue Palmer, with children, quote, increasingly battery-raised, rather than enjoying the free-range existence they could expect even 25 years ago. Among the many intriguing aspects of this discussion concerning the apparent closing in of children's worlds is the condemnation it uh, generates on both the left and the right of politics. Some headlines here on the screen uh, showing that. The left tend to stress a decline of community. The right, by contrast, lament a loss of individual liberty. Most often, commentators draw comparisons between contemporary times and their own childhood experiences. And so it is that nostalgia for a reimagined past can color analysis. Nevertheless, there is broad agreement that the trend towards reduced autonomy, a trend underpinned by hard data on walks to school through time, as well as by more anecdotal data and evidence, there's broad agreement that this trend needs arresting. And one wonders if, uh, if this presents an opportunity for more conservative concerted and collective action on the issue than has occurred hitherto. In this paper, I'll aim to introduce a longer view into the discussion and to suggest some conceptual underpinnings that might allow us 
to add the vital perspective of youth to adult-centered debates on what is termed by activists as the right to the city. I'm aware that rarely are young people's contemporary and more so historical voices taken into consideration in the debate I'm joining. In instances where they are, they often seem to chime with that of an 11-year-old girl in outer London who stated concisely in the early 2000s, and I quote, children want space to play and they can't be expected to stay indoors for the whole of their time. Children have to have space. Like that 11-year-old interviewee, my focus this afternoon is also on the urban. This is where the sense of decline I've outlined, or I shall outline, is felt most keenly and where the most interesting work is being done to create an alternative vision. Adult-led efforts to create, to create play space in cities such as Bristol are spreading. <coughs> Initiatives which entail closing streets to traffic and which borrow from the well-known 1970s idea of the Verneuf in Holland, seen here in Delft, um, as well as perhaps picking up on a later scheme in New York, um, and even perhaps the largely forgotten play streets of post-war England, seen here in Salford. I shall be similarly eclectic in pooling resources. As an urban historian especially interested in space and place, I do, of course, recognize the particularities of streets, neighborhoods, suburbs, and cities through time. But I riff here on Andrew May's concept of what he calls precincts in the global city. Urban landscapes produced in different locations, yet characterized by a discrete number of variables, and hence amenable to meaningful comparison. I also contend that much of what I'll outline for one Western city applies to many others. Though I've used terms including children and young people with care thus far, it might seem from what I have said that they are somehow interchangeable. A further clarification then. Children, childhood, youth, these and other age-related terms are imprecise social markers, historically contingent and thoroughly entwined with factors including gender, ethnicity and class. From an historical perspective, until the close of the 19th century, for instance, social commentators lacked a psychosexual conceptualization of adolescence, with the category of the teenager yet to be conjured until the 1950s. Legal definitions of age categorization vary through time, and age scheduling reveals much about attempts to impose a shifting concept of childhood in the classroom, hospital, and judiciary, to name but three sites for its production. The conceptual leap I ask of you this afternoon is to think not in terms of the becoming of children into adults, but of the being of children as children to accept the contemporary or historical experience on its own terms, not for, one, not for what one anticipates or knows comes next. Here the city spaces I examine in my research and the young people who dwell within them are of course linked. An image here of Melbourne's Flagstaff Gardens in 1866, the saplings and shrubs betraying the relative newness of this parkland in a city just 31 years old at this point in terms of its white heritage. Within the instant mushrooming city of Melbourne lived an astonishingly high proportion of under 14s, 42% and 
and under-19s, almost 50%, by the 1870s, a legacy of gold rush immigration and a resultant baby boom. Concern for the welfare of these young people yielded turn-of-the-century photos such as this one. The flesh and stone raw materials of the city seemed to require careful handling and arrangement. This image, in turn, speaks to another captured three-quarters of a century later here in England. Being and becoming are again in dialogue here. It is from the wellsprings of Melbourne's late 19th and early 20th century street life that I draw out some of my thoughts today. Most particularly, I contend that my concept of the historical youthscape, a youth-generated layer of city life, I contend that this concept speaks to current concerns for youthful autonomy. This slice of the city saw the refashioning of the materials and spaces of adults into an ephemeral youthful domain. Not an island city of playgrounds then, this instead was by daylight or lambent gaslight, a playground city, a socially produced place not always to the liking of city fathers as we see here. Contrary to contemporary and historical discourse, these were not, for by far the greater part, vulnerable children in need of rescue. The activities I elaborate in my book, from youthful street games to outdoor acts of public courtship, from juvenile street work to youthful consumerism, from moments of protest to promenading and performance, these, these things ask us to reconsider what a city is actually for. Is it merely, as Max Weber termed the city of the Middle Ages, a, quote, fusion of fortress and market? Is its function instead chiefly administrative? Or should it instead aspire to higher ideals? For a period of around 15 years from the early 1960s, a little over the halfway point between the then of my research on Melbourne and the now of today, a number of international scholars researching the use of the public domain implored urban planners to show greater appreciation for the sensory requirements and physical well-being of children. Perceiving the negative impacts of trends which commenced in the late 19th century, before the onset of the car, but accelerated by the car's later intrusion into street space, these writers called for a radical rethink and the restoration of, quote, the lost educational functions of the outdoor metropolis. Instead of containing urban youth into discrete and functionally dull sites, they urged, we should help them, quote, climb out of the sandbox and into the city. Working independently and with adults rather than children or young people in mind, French theorist and activist Henri Lefebvre called in 1967 for a renewed right to the city. For Lefebvre, the phenomenon of the, the, phenomenon of the city could best be understood as an ever-changing oeuvre, the collective product of the activities of its citizens and, quote, close to a work of art. Architects, he stated, could not predetermine a city's social relations, and civil servants possessed no right of synthesis. Instead, all city dwellers, regardless of wealth or status, were argued to share an equal right to urban participation based on nothing more than their residence in the metropolis. Lefebvre's work has influenced a host of influential writers following in his wake. 
One might think here of geographer David Harvey's writings on the reproduction of capital in built form, Ed Soger's call for spatial justice, or Kevin Lynch's assertion of spatial rights. To such assertions of the right to the city for minority groups, protesters, women alone or in groups at night, and others, I would like to insist that children's right to the city, the whole city, is also considered to be of fundamental importance. What might such a city look like? Well, though it didn't happen in London this year, you'll perhaps recall the so-called snow day of 2009 in the capital. On such occasions, with further examples here from New York in 1888 and 1954, children become what one writer has called lords of the city, roaming, creating, blurring the boundaries between street and park or between education in the classroom and education on the slopes uh, of snow-laden hills. For adults, begrudging perhaps of a stray snowball in the ear, the whiteout serves nonetheless as a reminder of the ludic potential of urban space, as well as confirming scholar Marco Huttenmoser's contentions regarding increased child-led sociability, indeed happiness for all. With cars stuck or forced into a gingerly crawl, new possibilities are available and the youthscape finds free reign. Yet, as anyone who's ever made a snowman can attest, such freedoms are transitory. Indeed, it might seem all too easy to, to fall into despair, as we see here, at the loss of vitality once the slush turns the white to grey. How then to make the city more permanently welcoming and on a more wholesale basis? Youthful urban citizenship, youth's right to the city, needs to entail more than a renewed right to roam. I note here with approval the extension of the franchise in the recent Scottish referendum to those aged 16 and 17, and the mooted idea to do the same as Brexit is decided as well. I respectfully disagree with the comments of Lord Tebbit speaking on the radio last week, doubting that 16 and 17 year, 16 and 17 year olds are intellectually capable of taking such important decisions. Indeed, I would advocate going further than in Scotland, extending the franchise downwards to at least 15 and perhaps 14, and not just on single issue cases, but to encourage participatory citizenship at general elections and in local planning. Two instances of creative city building capacity involving parks and young people round out my analysis in this regard. The first of these is contemporary. In Adelaide, the City Council is currently reaching out to local children in their own virtual backyards by asking them to begin shaping their designs for city parkland using the pixel-based gaming software Minecraft, as we see here. The most creative ideas will be used in the redesign of the city's national parks, backed by government funding. Virtual building blocks can be stacked by children in grades four to six until June the 12th those of you who might have offspring so interested. Adult-led but youth-oriented, the initiative seems highly worthwhile in bridging the virtual and the verdant. My second example is historical and takes us east to Melbourne and to the parkland flanking this building, erected for the Great Exhibition in 1880. It was here in November 1896 that the tireless parks curator, John Gilfoyle, 
a man usually very, indeed, over-concerned with the damage done to park greenery during children's play, observed that, and I quote now, during Cup Day and Prince of Wales' birthday, not a single instance of damage came under my notice, although there were hundreds of children in the gardens. The attraction was the timber laid along the line of a proposed fence at the back of the exhibition building, which they turned into seesaws. And it was indeed a pleasant sight and suggested a means of giving pleasure to the children and protecting the trees by providing boards and blocks for their amusement. Guilfoyle wondered if the Parks and Gardens Committee might approve for the wood to be left there permanently and five pounds found to cover the costs for new materials for the fence. Reading Guilfoyle's report, the committee considered the suggestion and did indeed sanction the request. In sight of the exhibition building, a material expression of confidence associated with Melbourne's boom years, the city's youngsters had fabricated something of their own. Built by the kids themselves, this was Melbourne's first adventure playground. The alternative, some might say dystopian vision to such autonomy, and here I will finish, is this, the global network of Kidzania centres. Under painted skies and directed by adult playmasters, children are introduced to the bright worlds of sponsorship and product placement whilst being simultaneously steered to volunteer for fantasy civic duties like firefighting. We might perhaps call it the little society. <laughs> that the children seem often to love an experience paid for by their parents is scarcely the point. How different the city of Melbourne, or perhaps Prague or, or Paris, a century and more ago. How different the concept of the right to the city, and how different the idea of cities and young people as co-constitutive. Thank you.